Before we begin today's episode, I want to let you know that it is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or any online store idea that you have kicking around in your head. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code WORDS at checkout to get 10% off. That's WORDS, W-O-R-D-S, 10% off. Squarespace.com. Build it beautiful. Welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and my foot is falling asleep. Isn't that the worst? The guest this week is Mr. Ben Pobjoy from a record label called Hot Charity Record, and he also manages a band called Single Mothers that is quite spectacular, and the singer at some point will be a guest on this show. And he also contributed to a lot of cool bands back in the day, that for me, that's in like the 90s slash early aughts. He played in a band called Spread the Disease, and he also played in a band called The Abandoned Hearts Club, which is where I first met him when I signed his band to Century Media Records. We unfortunately never were able to put anything out, but my my friendship was solidified with him during that time, and I was really excited to have Ben on the show. Uh, pleasantries, ideas, and other points of discussion out of the way first, and then we will dive into the interview, and then I'll talk to you a little bit afterwards. In case you haven't noticed, uh, the show has been picking up uh, a lot of steam. We've been getting a lot of cool sponsors to sign on to this, and so I wanted to kind of explain a little bit of how the podcasting ad space works, because... I know a lot of people, you know, are, are maybe curious about it because I myself, before I started to do podcasting on a more a, a regular and serious basis, I would just be like, oh yeah, there's there's an ad and like that's that is what it is. So honestly, it's incredibly important for you, the listener, to uh, support sponsors of the podcasts that you like. And when I mean support, like actually try out these products. Like most of the time, there are, a lot of these places are offering you either free or massively dis- discounted products. So do that because basically, what the advertisers do is they look at those actual metrics and they say, oh, wow, we've had a lot of people from 100 Words or Less, the podcast, support this thing. They signed up to Squarespace or they bought a mattress from us or whatever the case may be. It's They see that and then they reinvest in the show. And it's amazing because they're investing in independent music. I know that's a kind of a disconnect there, but they're looking at the show. They say, okay, the people that are listening to the show are important to us to speak to. And so, therefore, we're supporting this show that exists. And it's amazing because, honestly, they don't need to do this. And I know this sounds maybe like I'm shilling for the sponsors even more than I probably should be. But I just wanted to kind of close that loop for you as the listener to understand how that world works. You know, sometimes these ads come in through people that I know. Sometimes these ads come in through other avenues. But at the end of the day, it is a vote for independent discussion. And I love that fact. I love the fact that podcasting is reaching new heights that a lot of us never even imagined that have been listening to podcasts for years and years and years. And for those of you that have been listening to it for only a few months, it's even more exciting because you're diving into high quality things that are being put out there as opposed to a lot of the amateur stuff that existed many, many years ago. But anyways, just wanted to kind of close that loop for you provide a context for why it's important for you to support these sponsors. And in turn, you're supporting the show in ways that I can't even begin to thank you for. Also, if you are an audio person, so say you like to record bands or say you record yourself in GarageBand, please get in touch with me. 
Because basically, well, first off, I'm not firing the producer for this show. Tom Richfield will always be attached to this show. But basically, I'm launching some new and cool and exciting things in the future. I myself have a very limited scope of talent in regards to editing and producing from a actual functionality standpoint. I can, uh, I was able to edit the show on my own for a while, but then once Tom came in, it added a whole new level of professionalism and just great sound quality. So anyways, I encourage you, if you, the listener, are interested at all in working alongside of me, launching some other cool shows, please email me, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. There's a lot of exciting things going on. And basically, Tom just simply doesn't have the time to entertain every crazy idea that I have. So I want a few more of you people to uh, reach out and get in touch with me because I think there's some exciting things that we could potentially do together. And if you have experience in recording, it'll be even more exciting. So email me, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. So Ben, like I said, known him for a long time. He was initially hesitant in doing not not only this particular interview, but interviews in general. He's like, you know what? I let the work speak for me. Um, and that's kind of it. So I was like, Okay, I respect that. But I was like, I really feel that Ben would enjoy this experience in expressing himself. So I pushed back, showed him some shows of the past that I think he would identify with. And like, fortunately, he agreed. Because I think Ben uh, is such an incredibly interesting person because basically everything that he has done um, has been successful in some way, whether it's like his own expression or whether that's the ability to, you know, make some money off something in order to sustain himself to get to the next project. He's just lived the life of an artist. And I always respect that, even though me myself have always participated in creative endeavors. Um, I've honestly had the ability to work within institutions that provided me <laughs> a living. I was able to work in the creative fields of record labels and everything else without having to, uh, I guess, you know, starve to survive. So I always had this quote unquote safety net. And so when I meet and experience people that didn't have that safety net and really, really had to create it on their own, it's just always inspiring. So Ben agreed. He took time out of his vacation he had here in California to drive down to Orange County and meet with me. And it was such a great conversation. So I was really, really thankful for Ben for wanting to do this. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Ben. I will talk to you after the show. And there you go. obviously where we first met each other professionally. Sure. Um, and it was, it was one of those things where it was like the abandoned hearts club was, uh, you know, I loved what you guys were doing. And it was like, it was definitely one of those things where I was like, wow, I feel lucky that like I get to work at a record label and work with like a subversive band that like you had an agenda, sure. um, in this context of like, Oh, here's century media records. That's like, you know, not known for having, I mean, they're known for having controversial acts, but you know, controversial in like the you know, burning down churches way or whatever. Right. Um, the, because there was an agenda attached to it, it felt like obviously there was a larger purpose behind it. Obviously I presume that was deliberate, but then, you know, how do you kind of like reflect on that time and specifically that band where you were obviously, you know, taking your past experiences and trying to make something, I guess a little bit larger than what just your average band that appears out of nowhere. Totally. I think like at that time, you know, I'd like kind of grown up in like a traditional hardcore scene and had listened to like a lot of like youth crew growing up and then, you know, 
hardcore, you know, as you get older, kind of like broadens and you get into like discord and hydrohead and whatnot. And so just like the musical palette of, you know, hardcore kind of blossoming kind of inspired me to do something different. And then I've always had, um, I've always enjoyed like provoking and art that provokes. And I think like, you know, coming from the hardcore scene, especially like up in Canada and Toronto, you know, it's all white people. Like it's all dudes. It's like incredibly (laughs) like homoerotic in weird ways. And I think um, just toying with that has always been like quite interested, right? Like I think, you know, when you look at like hardcore, it's like predominantly middle-class and it's Mm. like, you know, especially coming out of the hardcore scene in the mid nineties where it's like white people, trying to talk about global issues or class issues or, or race issues. And to me, that it's the same kind of issue I have with university where there's so much absurdity mm-hmm. of, you know, white people preaching to white people about issues that are like greater than their experience or knowledge. Right. Um, so I think just provoking that and, you know, just the absurdity always kind of interested me. Like, I think I always had personal politics um, that maybe played into it a bit, but um i've always enjoyed bands that like entertain like mm-hmm. you know rather than kind of like the mid 90s when everyone kind of complained like it was an intellectually interesting time but also kind of boring at sometimes and you just wanted to see great music so <laughs> kind of that fine line of creating something provocative but also something like entertaining and not doing it from like a moral standpoint you know of having kind of like a very hard agenda yeah yeah no that's very it's very interesting because I, I can see where yeah i do agree when it's like when you do have the, you know, steeped in the mid nineties was one of those things where it's like every show you went to, you knew you were going to have a distro, you knew you were going to have a table full of zines, you knew you were going to have a person really mad about whatever particular issue like that happened last week. But then that sometimes sucked the fun or the release of just like, oh, I'm experiencing a show and music and that sort of stuff. And I also, I always love like the personalities. I mean, like you can have extremes like Dwid from Integrity and One Life Crew is kind of this, you know, I don't want to say like right wing or extremist, but just kind of like tough and like kind of like provocative and kind of like a really aggressive macho sense. But then you also have like other personalities like on a other spectrum, like Jesse Pearson or Ian McKay. And I always just thought these people were like just captivating, you Mm -hmm. know, and uh, never wanted to mirror myself after them, but just enjoyed bands that had personality versus, you know, bands that were, you couldn't discern from the pack. Yeah, no. And I think that's, that's a really important point. Cause I definitely think, I mean, even just the band's name, like the abandoned hearts club was so um, in in and of itself provocative. And like, it's, like I said, it did invoke these feelings of like, this is larger, like, especially with the word of club, like mm-hmm. this is larger than just like these five or six individuals creating mm-hmm. this music. Um, but then obviously it's like, you know, if, I, if people were to see you live, it was definitely like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. We're a club, but like you got to gain entry in some capacity. Like in, in, like you said, in that sort of like uh pushback on the audience. Yeah, totally. Well, I've always liked, um, you know, whether it was like the makeup or nation of Ulysses, like these bands were, uh, I think growing up with creative parents and being in museums and just understanding kind of like iconography and the way things looked, I always loved bands where you could kind of tie to like a place or time and thing. And so when I would see, you know, old photos of the germs or old photos of like the makeup. And you would be like, oh, if I put that photo in a bunch of photos with 10 other bands, you could always tell who that band was. So I liked having like a clear aesthetic in terms of, you know, everything from like packaging to uh, the way we dressed on stage to, you know, just be something that can, you could understand essentially and would stick out. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, this is such a vivid memory for me, but it's just like, see, you know, speaking to like the iconography and just the way that that bands present themselves, or it's like a band like Elliot. I remember when they were touring off of their first LP U S songs, 
they played like Coos Cafe here in Orange County. And it was one of those things where I, I didn't, I was only aware of them by name. They were setting up their equipment because Coos Cafe was obviously just like this hole in the wall venue. So they were dressed up in like, uh, you know, like white shirts, ties and like slacks. And it looked like obviously they could just like work at a bank. But then it was like after that tour, uh, the singer Chris Hickton did an interview where it was like, oh, we deliberately dress like that because people assume that if we're wearing, you know, an Earth Crisis T-shirt or whatever, like we're going to be a hardcore band. So like they wanted this blank canvas. And I just always like, that makes so much sense, especially in those days where it's like, obviously you couldn't access information on the internet as easily as you do then or as easily as you did do now. Um, But I just always thought it was so uh, evocative where it's just like, oh yeah, I don't know what this band sounds like. And then you watch them play and you're like, oh wow, like it's a fresher take, you know? And like you said, like what you were trying to accomplish was just like the uniformity of what you were trying to kind of push forward. And like, it's one thing I always think that like punk tries to be its own thing, like sometimes to its detriment. I think it's kind of a little extreme now, but like I'd always loved rock and roll, right? Mm -hmm. Like I just love, um, you know, like New York dolls. Like they look wild. You saw that and you're like, wow, this is going to be crazy. And I remember like really in the early nineties, I went to Buffalo and I saw dead guy and they were all dressed up like in police outfits, like classic police outfits. And they played. And I remember one guy had like a clear SG And I was like, this is so fucking weird. And so like didn't pertain to the music, but then they're angry and it's called dead guy. And so I just love that showmanship. Like, I think it, it makes it really fun. And I've always just kind of loved that. Gravitated towards that. Yeah. Yeah. You were born and raised in a suburb outside of Toronto, right? It was, it was one of those things where, I mean, in, in obviously like reading that, that bio you sent me and like easily one of the most detailed like thing, and well, I, I don't do interviews, so I was like, I don't know what information you're going to be. No, no, on. I, I appreciated that just because it was so. Um, yeah, it was very. You've always struck me as a person who's obviously very organized and very deliberate. Um, was that always like a thread that kind of you know sort of came into your life, or was that something you like learned? I think work? it was like kind of learned. Like uh, I grew up with parents who were like from England. They immigrated to Canada and started their businesses. And so always having like entrepreneurial parents who had started their own businesses, like you kind of just grow up in like an environment that's kind of like diligent. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. clinical, but um, there was no safety net for them in so far as, you know, like they had to work to pay the bills. So um, culturally that was kind of ingrained in me early on. And then, you know, when I was kind of grade eight, grade nine, getting into punk, um, because there was kind of a blooming scene um, mm-hmm. just outside Toronto at the time. And I just started booking shows and making zines, like all these like, you know, fairly primitive things, but there was obviously 20 steps uh, involved. And that kind of just got me on the path of, you know, essentially just like making culture and just realizing that there's, you know, any hard thing is just a hundred simple steps, right. <laughs> you know, is what like nothing's impossible. Like, yeah. Yeah. If you break, if you break it down, like this, this thing that seems insurmountable. I mean, I, I remember a piece of advice that my father gave me before he passed away where it was like, I can't remember what it was I was talking to him about, but it was like this massive undertaking. And he was like, just do a little bit of it a day. And I was like, Oh, you're, you're right. I don't need to do this all in like one day or one week or whatever, but yeah, breaking it down. Yeah. Like, and then you do get that, um, that, that connotation for how something is achieved. Yeah. So yeah, I think like, um, being organized, like came natural is also something that is learned. Um, Mm. but I say like, as I get older, I get less, less organized. I try and just focus on like coming up with ideas now because the work I do now is like a lot bigger that I'd get dwarfed by the detail. Right. (laughs) That would bog you too much. Do do you have siblings or brothers and sisters? Yeah. I have one younger brother who's four years younger. Okay. So I'm turning 34 next month and he'll be turning 30 this year. Okay. 
I guess your, your, your sort of focus and like how much you've, you delved into uh, like music in general. Um, it seems like I see a lot of people that kind of gravitate towards it that are only children. And I'm reflecting mm-hmm. on my own experience because I have no brothers or sisters. So like you struck me as like a person that didn't have, like, did your brother get into any of this sort of stuff? Yeah. I think he- like after the fact, like he definitely got into punk Mm-hmm. Uh, and hardcore, you know, during his teens and early 20s and then kind of got into university. And I think that kind of consumed him and became like a, an intellectual. And I right. think he's just graduating law school now. So he's been like in post-secondary school for like over 15 years. Right. Um, where for me, I think I became a lot more passionate about it. But I just happened to go to high school at a time, you know, like in the mid-90s, snowboarding culture was huge and skateboarding culture was huge. And, you know, like Green Day Dookie was like a mainstream kind of radio song record mm-hmm. um so hardcore was really vibrant and because the word was just out in my high school i was able to kind of get into that so um you didn't it necessarily was, you didn't necessarily have um obviously just because you were the old, oldest in your family you didn't have uh i guess a gatekeeper so to speak like yeah there pers- wasn't a gatekeeper like i went to high school and you're like oh they're punks you know what i mean like they're those are weirdos and then somehow you know through kind of being involved in like skateboarding just you know someone's like gives you a hand flyer for a two dollar show and you're like oh this is good and you know i kind of just walked into like a really vibrant scene where you had bands like new day rising and great and you know chokehold and mm-hmm. it was just like a really rich time like i don't you know, everyone likes to say that their generation kind of had the golden age, but I think it was like the last big DIY golden age before, you know, punk and hardcore kind of had a resurgence where it blew up and, you know, bands could be career bands. So I just kind of stumbled into it at a really great time. And, um, you know, I would love to be like, yeah, I just seek it out and ride a bus really far, but I pretty much had to walk 15 minutes from my house to see like really incredible shows. And Right. It was like, dro- it was dropped in your lap, but at the same time, you obviously had to... Um, you felt, I'm obviously in what you, like you said, the sort of culture you were creating mm-hmm. around that, um, you felt that, uh, was that because of like a, I guess a compulsion to create or a compulsion to, I guess, contribute to the scene that you were starting? Yeah, to, I like, think like, you know, like it was a really vibrant time where like punk and activism were tied hand in hand. So there was people organizing like anti-fur marches and like food, not bombs. And so doing was a big part of the culture mm-hmm. and, um, growing up parents who were like new to Canada, they didn't have a lot of Canadian friends. So just doing and creating was like quite natural to their experience. So when I joined this, I was like, what I think like really got me hook, line and sinker in a punk was this fact that uh, what punk taught me is that like, you don't need permission to do anything. You just have to try. Right. And I think like a lot of people in like mainstream society, it's like, you have to go to school, like school is a, and then that leads to you being able to do B. You need to be licensed. You need to do this. Or like, punk is like all these like wackos just you know like that's why there's bad promoters like that's why there's zines where the pagination's wrong because it's like and that's what i love about it is that um there's no permission therefore you can do as much or as little in the scene as possible and so um that just spoke to me when i was like wait i can like write a band and like tell them i want to do a show and can't give them guarantee them any money they're going to want to do it i was like this is amazing like You know, my biggest exposure is like being on the hook for like the 50 bucks I have to throw to like the church hall rental to do a show. So um, for me, and I just thought it was like incredibly amazing just to be able to, you know, I've always been inspired by people who make things out of nothing. And the fact that like it basically, there weren't many inputs that it took to like put on a show. Like you had to maybe make some calls because this is pre-internet and get to like a Kinko's and make some photocopies and just 
skate around and hand out flyers and just hope people showed up and they did because it's the suburbs so it's not like you're competing for yeah things this is to what's do. happening on saturday night yeah right so yeah I, I am jealous of your experience in regards to the uh like the southern ontario toronto whatever you'd like to call yeah. the hardcore scene because it was i think it was around like uh, i was around like 17 or 18 when i first started to like kind of like trip on that where it was like you know through left or dead grade accurate all that stuff and it was one of those it just blew my mind because it was like Here's this area, like 3,000 miles from me. And it was just, it was so, it seemed so fertile where, like you said, there was a lot of shows happening, but like all the bands were so drastically different to whereas I was looking at my reflective experience here in Orange County. And yeah, you could point to bands that were sonically different, but it was like, generally speaking, it was kind of, you know, a lot of the same-ish sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was always like, oh my gosh, like a band like accurate can play with a band like you know like you said like great or whatever and like obviously they shared members and stuff like that yeah. but it was it, it seemed uh yeah it seemed pretty open like was that reflective of your experience there what yeah 100 like percent. Little- i okay. think like what was like phenomenal is a going to shows where it'd be like a grindcore show supported by like a backpack emo band where kids sat on the floor and i think like one thing that like we were quite lucky about is, you know, I kind of got into going to the shows like Neil Rodman, the singer of Acrid, was probably 16 at the time where I was like 13 or 14 and I could grab a ride with him to Hamilton. And just geographically, you know, we were probably just a little over an hour from like Buffalo. So you had like Slugfest and later like bands like Hourglass. And then, you know, a couple of more hours away was like Erie, Pennsylvania and Wilkes Bar, um, you know, like how fast and Syracuse was on our radar. So there was just like all these pockets of different scenes that were two hours apart. They were all quite different. And I think, um, you know, within the context of being outside the Internet, we had kind of like a little globalized music scene in that way. Right. Where like Toronto was slightly different than Hamilton. Hamilton was different than Buffalo. Buffalo was different than Erie. But they all kind of fed into each other. And so. Because of that, I remember like friends would go away for the weekend. They'd come back with like five, seven inches and like, you got to check this out. And also like Detroit wasn't far and there was an amazing scene there with like Ottawa and Nama and bands Mm -hmm. like that. So that mix was just out there. So I think it just enabled like Ontario, which was uh, Southern Ontario was kind of at this crossroads in between all these places. So all these different sounds fed into it. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's so many different inspirations to pull from. So I just think that's, you know, different than those scenes were you know, DC had a sound or New York City Hardcore had a sound where it was just a a tapestry of so many different inputs that allowed it to have such a broad spectrum of sounds. It's definitely, it's the only thing I guess I kind of lean on from a nostalgia factor because like obviously like like you, I definitely reject a lot of notions of just like you said, like, oh, this was the golden age and everything else sucks, like that's new. But I definitely, I miss the feeling of being able to uh, pinpoint a band to a particular area where it's just like, you know, whatever like bands like you know the national acrobat and stuff like that Mm -hmm. from louisville you'd be like oh yeah like weirdish angular hardcore yeah that kind of comes from louisville you know absolutely um and i do miss those pockets because obviously either bands once they become successful enough they fracture they live in different places and so like i definitely miss those elements of like oh yeah i wish you could kind of pinpoint that particular band to a particular town or scene or whatever so like you mentioned like your your parents were obviously creative and entrepreneurial um so once you started to kind of delve into this world of of creation and art from like an independent perspective you know i mean it sounds like they obviously gave you a lot of freedom from that perspective um but was there i'm sure that there was some sort of conflict in the usual i guess teenage angst period or was it pretty much like it was pretty cool like i think um my parents rule was like as long as you do well in school you can do whatever you want like (laughs) i couldn't pull all-nighters but they're like if you're home by a reasonable hour and you're doing well at school and you're not like 
you know, crashing the car or getting wasted or any of that. You can do whatever you want. And I was quite lucky because my dad in England, when he was in his teens, started to hitchhike. And so um, when I asked to go on roadie my first tour at like 14 across the States, he was like, can't say no to you because I've already shared this story with you. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I've already shared this story. My dad let me and my dad had like, um, hitchhiked like out of England, like into France. Right. So he was just like, oh, okay, man, this is he's right. like, I feel like I'm in the position of my dad. So he was always quite cool. I think my dad was always like quite interesting because he more tested me on like ideology and questions questioned, you know, some of like the philosophy. So getting into like veganism, environmentalism and whatnot, I think, um, He'd always been just someone who would like questioned authority and disliked authority, despite the fact that he came out of the military, which is something I don't understand. Right. So there was kind of like ideological uh, confrontation, but I think he just did it to kind of test me on what I stood for. So, but beyond that, um, yeah, there were, they weren't really like too worried, you know, as long as I did well in school, that was kind of like I had the golden ticket to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's such a, that's such a liberating feeling because uh, you, your your experience is definitely indicative of mine as well, where it was mm-hmm. like my, again, my mom was like, all right, you know, on weeknights, you got to be home by 10 or whatever. And like she gave, you, you were given ground rules. And as long as you like didn't break that trust, because like to me, it's just my friend that acted inappropriately or did these things where it was just like, all that's going to do is just like bum your parents out and then you're not going to be able to do the fun stuff that you can potentially do under the radar where it's like, you know, I remember being like, I'm going to go to a show and I'll be able to get home right at like nine 59 and then I won't get in trouble. And my parents aren't the wiser because they didn't know that I went to a show or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wasn't transparent. Like there were some nights where I'm like, I'm going to be home late. I'm going to a show. And that would be like a two hour drive to Buffalo. You right. know what I mean? And right. then like stay out to like mighty taco eating and get back at like, 4 a.m. and my parents were like, you were out late. What time do you get back? And I'm like, oh, one. I just went to a show in Toronto. And then also the first time I asked to go on tour with a band, like I think, you know, my, my parents knew what punk rock was, but I don't think they understood like the culture. So when I said like we're going on tour, I think they didn't, they knew that we had vans, but I don't think they knew it was like as shitty as it was, like <laughs> sleeping in gutters. Like I think they were like, oh, the band probably gets enough money to stay at a hotel. Right. Which when I look back at the time, it's like, you know, we toured with like maps. Like maybe there was like MapQuest. Right. None of us had cell phones. Like I would go on the road for yeah, like... you were the wilderness. Right? I'd go on the road for like three weeks, like roading with like 200 bucks, like not even enough to get back. And just like, <laughs> I think like my parents are like thought it was a lot more pro than it was. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, funny. they're like, oh, there probably is a tour manager and they have hotels versus like, you know, the vans, the wheels flying off the van and... Totally. You know. This is, this is all held together by duct tape. Yeah. Yeah, at best. <laughs> Once you started to, uh, you know, dive more into that culture and like you said, you know, kind of booking shows and um, what did you like? Did you have the experience of being like, you know, once you toured with New Day Rising? Because like mm-hmm. you did you ever actually play New Day Rising? No, no I never okay. played in them. They like for for whatever reason, like brought me on tour to roadie and right. I had no clue what roading meant. Right. I don't even know what I did. Like I pretty much sat at the merch table like. I think they just liked having me around. Like I turned 14 on that tour. I remember in Kentucky and I'm like, I, I don't even know how I can get across the border. I was going to say, I don't yeah. think I ne- even had, you needed a passport to cross back then. And I remember yeah. once I like lost my birth certificate and I just borrowed my friends to go to the U S and I got his mom to handwrite me a note. She was like, this kid, Chris can like cross the border. 
Like that's how like it feels like a thousand years ago. <laughs> totally. It's like that 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 flu. Like now you would be shot on site. Like <laughs> they would never let you in. They would just be like a handwritten note with. So it was super weird. And then like yeah, so that was the first band I kind of went away. Uh, you know, went on the road with. Right. And were you? Um, I presume just because of the age and the like the interesting experiences you were having. Did you ha- immediately have the notion to be like, I would like to play in a band? Like that would be fun. No, or, okay. no musical inclination. Like yeah. no musical inclination whatsoever. I think like being in a band was the outcome of people just being like, "We like you. You can't do anything. Screaming probably isn't that hard. You be the singer." Like there <laughs> right. is no like aptitude test or like musicality. Like none right. whatsoever. And you and you showed no uh, and you showed no signs of like wanting to like learn guitar or anything. Yeah, like that. I mean, like I think in hindsight, like the only thing I wish my parents had done different my whole life is put me in music class and forced me to learn like um, how to play piano. Because sure. I think when you can like read sheet music and play piano, it's just like a jump off point to every other mm-hmm. um, instrument. My parents were both kind of into visual art. My mom um, painted as a hobby. My dad did like pottery and photography. So. Um, they were kind of visual. They loved music. Like my dad had a huge record collection that he brought from Europe, but um, they had never played in bands. Like they went out dancing in, you know, the UK. That was their extent. So mm-hmm. um, I just didn't really have like that older brother who played guitar or a cousin who played guitar. Like, you right. know, like my family, we all kind of lived on the same block and the kids played soccer because our parents played soccer and rugby. So it just like, it just wasn't there, but music was always there in my house. So I never aspired to be a musician, but I loved music and, you know, I loved being involved in the scene. And then the people that did know how to play music were like, you should just do this. Right. All right. No (laughs) permission needed. Hey, uh, Hey, Ben's a good hang. So like you should, maybe you should just like scream. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I think it is uh, interesting just because you, you do when you do have that experience when you're younger and, and touring and stuff like that and see kind of a band playing, you do have that feeling of like, oh, like that would be cool to do that in some capacity. But you were just happy to, I guess, exist around it and kind of like, yeah, I and I always thought like there are some really great front men like around like, you know, like I would see Scott Vogel and I was like, wow, this guy's a beast, man. Like yeah. he's like, you know, Scott's like not a big guy, but he's like has a physical presence, you know, like and mm-hmm. he's like pretty like fearless and diving in the crowd. And I was like, I'm not that big. I don't want to get like beat up. And then, you you know, you would have like more musical bands like grade where like the singer could actually sing. And I'm like, I can't sing. Right. So um, you're like, where do I land in this? You know, or I'd see Converge really early and I'm like, wow, this is just like the athleticism of this band is like incredible. So there was all these things of just like never saw myself doing that. But then yeah. I guess when given the opportunity, it was like, well, all like right. that's the thing I love about punk where it's like, you know, like I wasn't a singer. If I sucked at a singer, I still wouldn't be a singer. So therefore, like there is no strikeout to failing. I'm still in the same position. Whereas if it goes well, then I can be in a band and I can tour. So that's amazing. So might as well try, right? Right, right. Um, what kind of kid did you find yourself being like in, in, in high school? And, uh, you know, because you seem like you've always struck me as a, as a very social person, but um, not to the extent where you would be like, I guess the uh, sort of loud mouth, you know, like, yeah, I definitely wasn't a loud mouth. Like I went to, when I got into high school, like uh, the music scene was greater than like one high school. So I had a lot of, a lot of my good friends didn't go to my high school and they didn't really live that close, you know, maybe like 10 to 20 miles away where you'd have to get on the bus or jump in a car. So uh, I had a few friends that were into punk and hardcore at school, but I was also put in like the enhanced program with like total nerds. Sure. Uh, But they were really like, fucking dope like they were super right. cool and super smart so i was like i love these nerds like you yeah. know i'm not saying like nerds are my people because i was into music but 
I always kind of existed across these different worlds. And then like, for whatever reason, my older cousin went to my high school and he was like, join the cross country team. So I knew some jocks. So I just kind of like was friends with a lot of different people at school, but not like as tight with them as I was like the people from the music scene. So, right. you know, you were able to filter through different people. Yeah. I think I was just kind of like that guy who was into music, Mm -hmm. um, but didn't have like a clique at at school. Right, Right. And like the other thing too, is like, I, you know, I had a like people that I was friendly with at school, but like, since I was 14, I was like touring going across the States. And so when you're like, hang out with some kid and he works at like Dairy Queen for the summer. Right. It's like, dude, that's like it's a so of- boring, right? Like objectively. So, you know, like for them, they would be like worried about trying to do well in exams at the end of the school year. And I'd be trying to like lock down shows for that tour. So right. it was just like just different existence, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely a weird experience when you do come back from school for whatever your junior senior year of high school. And like you have like either you're doing your own tours with your own bands and like yeah. just comparing notes with friends being like, Oh yeah, I didn't see you this summer. Well, yeah. Cause I was gone for three months. Like I played, you know, twice. And in- I remember in high school, people would be like, it seems like your band's so big, but I've never heard of it. Like you tore all over. Are you going to be on the radio? And I was like, eh, I don't think so. You the radio? <laughs> and they're That's- like, how can you tour if you don't have like music videos in that? I was like, oh, I can't even explain. Like, it was like I've, niche to a real niche support system of little scenes across the U.S. Right. Like, hey, you know your living room? Yeah, I play in a lot of those. Like, yeah. And they're like, can I hear your band you play? And they're like, this is terrible. <laughs> right. This is, I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah. When did spread the disease kind of start to come into your life? Was that like post high school? And like, yeah, I think spread the disease was like an outgrowth of this band called Carenza, which is like super political, like hilariously political, <laughs> like embarrassingly political now. And so they were um, a band that was fully operational. And then at some point they were like, let's get a second singer. And I was like, sure. At that time where bands had two singers to me now is still like right. so terrible. And then I don't quite remember what happened, but the first singer, so goddamn confusing. The first singer at some point was like, I don't want to do vocals. I want to play bass. So there's a shuffle up. So then the band kind of like, uh, everyone like playing together and uh, one band ended and a new band started, which was Spread the Disease, Mm -hmm. um, probably around, you know, I was probably like 15, 16, grade 10. Okay. uh, And then that continued kind of like onwards. Sure. And you, you sang on both records, correct? Yeah, I sang on both, both mediocre records on (laughs) Eulogy. Oh, dude, I just remember it was one of those things where labels that I like kept total beats on. Yeah. Like Eulogy was one of them where I was just like, dude, whatever they put out, like I'm all on board for and it was like, even, I mean, even terrible bands to this day where it's like that band forever in a day, like yeah. stuff that they put out that I was like, dude, I am so on board with this. But I just, I remember we spread the disease coming out and it was just like, dude, black metal influence, hardcore, like yeah, how bad is, idea, <laughs> bad <laughs> idea. But I just remember being so enthusiastic about it because it was, uh, cause again, it was, it was obviously from the area that I was already paying attention to. I was like, Whoa, these two great worlds, like Southern Ontario. And then like eulogy coming together. Um, was it, was it one of those things that you like people did kind of pay attention to you guys because of obviously like the eulogy connection or just like the pedigree of the people that were playing with? I would say there was little to no pedigree. Sure. I think, um, <laughs> I think like Dave Bushmeyer from New Day Rising was in the band and he was older and, you know, he'd probably been going to shows for right. about like 10 years before then. So, um, he was quite like established in the scene and is like a personality, like in his own right, that is like rub people the wrong way. I love him. He's always had like the best intentions, but right. I think like he's driven some people crazy. So he had, you know, a lot of friends in the scene. And then Trevor from the band was also 
booking. He got this like incredible gig at a YMCA in Oakville where he was like paid to do like youth programming, which means he was like just paid to put on shows. So because of that, you know, he was putting on shows like regularly, like, you know, one to two shows a week. And so therefore was booking every local band. So, and he was really cool about just, you know, throwing tons of different bands on the bill. So I think like a lot of people just liked him. So, you know, just having those two guys definitely gave us like a legs up in terms of people kind of caring versus just kind of entering a scene where, you know, there, it's not like we played show one and there was like fans, but at least right. people were coming out, which is always great as opposed right. to, you know, playing to no one. Right, right. People were aware like, oh, this is a thing from these people who... Yeah, like they'd be like, this is Dave and Trevor's new band. We should check it out. Right, you right. Know? Like people knew me, but I was like quite young and I didn't have like, you know, like growing up before the internet. Like you'd always, you look at like show flyers now and be like X members of like seven different bands for... Right. They kind of be like, oh, I liked one of those bands. I should care about this. You right. Know? That, that ushered you through like pretty much until like when you started to go to university, correct? Yeah. So I think like played and spread the disease all throughout um, high school. And then I can't remember the reason why it tapered off. I think I actually think it was like some of the members like geographically going to university quite okay. far like Trevor, who was in the band, who was quite an organizer in the band. And, you know, he promoted as well. So he was kind of like the organizational backbone. So when he left... Um, I think things kind of like uh, splintered and then going into university, I just had a, you know, some of us were now like living in the city, um, Mm -hmm. living in Toronto, going to school. And then there was just that desire to um, start a band, I think, as like our taste got a bit more sophisticated, listening to stuff like beyond, uh, you know, just like the hardcore music we've grown up with. Right, right. And so you weren't, um, even though you were the default businessman of uh, the abandoned hearts club you didn't have much sort of i guess business interplay within the context of spread the disease no spread the disease last like trevor was like uh older than me and i kind of didn't want to i always think that like the best bands have like you know one chief and like indians and you know when there's like two chiefs like knocking heads like it can just be kind of like disastrous trevor had like a big personality and it, it never like conflicted like mm-hmm. he was like quite like hard-headed in a good way and you know i always kind of agreed with what he was doing and so you know, and I was a bit younger. So by the time I got a bit older in the abandoned heart, like the abandoned hearts club, like was my band. Right. Um, I don't mean that in like a ruler sense, but I felt like, you know, I could, I was a guy that right. registered the van and, you know, like registered the website. And so when I was older, I just kind of felt that, you know, I could take those responsibilities on myself and, you know, right. Yeah. And be able to put be able to put it together because you had, for lack of a better term, like the vision of what it, what it Yeah. And it kind of learned like in Trevor shadow, like he was one of those guys where he was like older than me and, um, you know, I could ask him for advice. And so, you know, kind of by the time I was in my late teens going to university, I pretty much knew what you needed to do to get a band functional. Sure. You mentioned earlier, um, as you started to go to university, like you felt it kind of, I guess, unstimulating or uninteresting and you kind of were pulled away from that. Um, what was, uh, I guess, before you were pulled away from that, what was kind of the path you were setting yourself on? Like, you know, do you want to be a teacher? Like where, where did you want to yeah, land? I felt like quite a lot of pressure to go to university right out of the gates. Like both my parents had been like pretty working class in England. My dad had gone to university, but then left to join the military. And so there was always this kind of, um, not, not a narrative of like, we moved here to give you a better life, but you know, essentially like my parents just being like, there's a lot of opportunity for you here. So I didn't, I didn't want to uh, squander it. So just, I think as an outgrowth of being involved in the hardcore scene, I always love history and politics. So I went to study that, I think with having a bit of an eye to go into law, Mm -hmm. but when I got to university, I found it, um, 
quite disappointing. Like my little brother had a great experience and I was always so jealous, but um, having read, um, you know, like Howard Zinn and Chomsky since the time I was 14 and then going into a first year political science course where they're discussing like the differences between capitalism and communism, like it felt, and it's not like I was um, more intelligent than those people. I don't want it to come across that way, but I'd always already been familiar with these ideas for five years and had read quite in depth about it that I just knew it was going to be a bumpy kind of boring road. Right. So You're like, yo, I got to slog this out for two years yeah. and then an additional. So know. like, and I was like touring with bands and I was like really trying to make a run with it during university. So I say for the first two years, I wasn't giving it like my best at university. And then kind of during university is when like the sea change with piracy happened. Like there was already like pennies in the pot if you're a punk band. And then with piracy, I was like, oh my God, this is even tougher. So Excuse me, pardon me. I must interrupt this great conversation we're having with Kevin for today's sponsor. It's Casper Mattress. Now I know what you're thinking. Mattresses, really? But this is the real deal. It's obsessively engineered and American made at a very, very fair price. And now you, you the listener, can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com backslash words and using the code words, W-O-R-D-S. Now listen, we spent a third of our lives asleep. Don't you want to make that a good experience? Casper brings together two extremely comfortable technologies for better nights sleep. Latex foam and memory foam. You know what those two things are. You've laid on those, whether it's a pillow or a mattress, but Casper has just the right amount of sink and just the right amount of bounce, no matter what you're desiring from a mattress. And they've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They will deliver it right to your house and you can try it for 100 days. And if you don't like it, they'll pick it back up. That's amazing, because how painful is the process of shopping for a mattress? You go into a store, you lay on it for like 30 seconds, and you're like, I guess this is good, and then a truck comes out, and they barely are able to fit it in your house, and it's just a nightmare. This is so much easier. You will actually get to sleep on this. So it's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Compare that to any other industry average, and it is an absolutely amazing value. So like I said... $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com backslash words and using the code words, W-O-R-D-S. I've slept on these things. They're incredible. Just do it, okay? Because realistically, it helps the show and it also helps you sleep and wake up and feeling awesome. So like I said, $50 towards any mattress, casper.com backslash words using the code words. Terms and conditions apply, of course, all that legal jargon, but do it. Try Casper. You won't regret it. I had this hopes of going to law school, but then just realizing that, you know, within the academic, like being intellectual is different than being academic. And I just wasn't part of that academic system. And um, kind of during that time, I was like, well, I can take my skill set as a promoter and create like a design agency mm-hmm. um, where I would work in music, but more on like the packaging end. So, right. Um, and that was born Switzerland. Yeah, that was born Switzerland. The, um, the thing that I always admired about you from that perspective as well, where it was like, it seemed, I, I always really like people like the, the notion of like, you know, faking it until you make it. Yeah. Where it's like having the idea, especially it's like when you exist in the real world where it's like, you know, you booking a show is going to be meaningless to somebody on the yeah. outside, but you you had this this idea of like looking very official, legitimate, like you know whatever. Whether it's like from the, just the way your website looks, or whether the way you present yourself, all these notions, I feel like you really paid attention to, and like yeah. the 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 all the design work that you were doing out of that, it seemed to me it struck it struck me very professional, 
deliberately so where it's just like oh yeah like we come from this background but like i want to make sure that like people that don't understand this world will still want to work with that like was that kind of the intention totally like i'm still waiting to this day i'm almost like in my mind looking over my shoulder like getting ready to be busted like i don't (laughs) feel like a fraud but i've just like ended up in these rooms where i'm like how am i here yeah and i'm just waiting for someone to ask about a degree or ask about a CV (laughs) and they never do. And, you know, luckily like I have like somewhat of a gift of gab and come up with good enough ideas that always see me through the next round. But you know what I learned really early on was that like perception is reality. You know, it just is like if something looks good, people tend to think it is good. Mm -hmm. And when behind the scenes, it sucks. And I think like a lot of my bands are proof positive of that. Like, you know, (laughs) it looked great. And now when I revisit the actual like product or output, I'm like, this sucks. But you know, (laughs) Right, it looked like, good so that did a lot of like the heavy lifting totally like that that got us like 75 percent of the way there it's like yeah the yeah. other 25 percent, yeah you know it was a little bumpy but yeah <laughs> i remember too like such a very uh a funny experience that i had with with you was obviously when we were getting together the uh the full length that you guys were trying to accomplish the aloha cocksuckers full length yeah <laughs> and it was one of those things i'll never forget the you know because i mean you and i are the same age yeah and so having the experience of you basically laying out like, Hey, so we want to call our record Loha cocksuckers and me being like, wow, how am I going to present this to my boss? <laughs> that will be, um, that, that could at least get him on board in some capacity. Yeah. Um, but I just remember being so that w- I wouldn't even, because there was no like real conflict between you and I, it was no. just a matter of like, trying like to, dude, trying this to- make my job really hard. <laughs> totally. But it was, I just remember being like, Oh, wow. All right. I got to wrap my head around this and then uh, figure out how to sell this to the uppers or whatever. Um, but it was, uh, it, it definitely was, it was an experience that I'm sure that obviously you were reflecting on that and reflecting on why you were attempting to do that was very, uh, I guess, liberating in some respects, or it's just like, again, kind of trying to provoke people and yeah. being that sort of, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah, we want to call our record Aloha Cocksuckers and you're going to like that, like yeah. to the outside world, not to me particularly. Um, was there, uh, I guess it was kind of trying to assemble that and rally the troops. Um, was it one of those things? Cause it, it struck me as a difficult thing for you to obviously keep everybody inspired in the band. I don't know. Yeah. It was kind of like, there's a lot of different personalities, like in the band, like some guys were older, some guys were younger, some guys were in school, like some guys were doing like a ton of drugs. So right. I think that is what made it fun. But what also was like, it's like the death punch was that like, you know, I think when things are dangerous, they can be exciting, but mm-hmm. when they're dangerous, they can also be impossible to work with. So, right. um, we had like a drummer who was really great. And um, when we were trying to get serious, he just is like, I'm going back to school. And we're like, really? We have a great opportunity to do this. And he's like, no, I really want to go back to school. And so we then tried out like other drummers and it wasn't working. And I'm just not one to, you know, you can't kind of go into a new iteration of the band if it's not as good as the previous iteration. So I just kind of saw that and I was like, let's just kill this as opposed to watch it die a really slow painful death you know we could we can wait these next two years and it will be really really painful yeah we can just do it instead of me just being like i told you so and having to collectively experience that on stage when the band's even worse you know (laughs) right right that started to to dissolve and you were doing design work and you in your i guess kind of collective body of work like you've been you know if someone were to obviously look at everything like you've worked in almost every single medium from photography to like actual you know zines and printing and magazines from that perspective is it one of those things where you 
do those out of sheer uh, interest in that medium? Or is it just the opportunity presents itself and you're like, well, I'll figure this out. I, I just want to do it. Yeah, I think a bit of both. Like, I think who you are and how you present yourself to the work, like uh, present yourself to the world, the world in turn, like provides you with opportunities. I don't mean that in like a new age way, but if, mm -hmm. you know, like my dad always had cameras around the house, so I'd borrow his cameras and I'd take photos and then people would see me photographing at a show and they're like, have you ever silk screened? And I'd be like, no. And they're like, I can show you how to take a photo to print on a shirt. So it's always like these creative communities. There's always opportunities to learn um, new things. And I think that punk to me, what I've always loved about it is like, you know, no permission needed. It's really explorative. It can be whatever you define it to be. So um, like, you know, I've shot photos for some of the biggest magazines in the world. I've never studied photography. Right. That wouldn't have happened had I not gotten <laughs> to punk. Like, Punk didn't like provide me with a confidence, but it just um, always inspired me to try, you know, just like, I mean, like I would protest for places. Like I knew I wasn't going to shut it down, but it's like, you know, sometimes like the end goal isn't changing the world. It's just trying to enrich yourself sometimes and just trying to try, you know, and right. I think like when you get comfortable with failing, um, you take things less seriously in a way where it's like, you don't put everything on the line where you just kind of realize like played in four bands before one took off. And I think like those are really great lessons for life because I think this culture, it's like if you fail once in the mainstream culture, like you're over with where, you know, punk allowed me to kind of like really stumble and just realize like it takes a bunch of different efforts for projects to get off the ground. Right. What was the, uh, I guess on that note, what was kind of the, the one thing that, uh, you know, like the one thing that failed that you, I guess, derived a lot of knowledge from, because I mean, you, you know, success is, is yeah. cool. And obviously everyone's striving for that, but like you tend to learn a lot less than when you fail, like what, what sort of, uh, whether it's a specific project or whether it's a specific, um, you know, discipline that you tried that was like, Oh yeah, that, that sucked. And I think objectively being a failed musician, okay. you, know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. never having a band where it like made it work. Like, you know, really wanted to put out a final like a Band of Hearts Club record and that dissolved. So um, that was unfortunate. And going to university and just finding myself where I just like hated that experience and, you know, didn't fully do it to appease my parents. But, you know, I had one parent that's like um, quite creative and another parent that's quite entrepreneurial. So when I got to school, I was like, it just didn't feel like applied enough. So by the time I kind of graduated, I was just like, I just refused to move forward doing shit I don't want to do. Right. And I've kind of like stuck to that. Like I'm really, I don't know if proud is the proper word, but you know, since graduation, like I've never really worked for anyone else. And I love that. Like, I just like, you know, you only have so much time on this, in this world. And if you're not doing what you want to be doing, it just seems like wasted time. And right. that's obviously coming from a place of like privilege. I'm a white dude that was able to go to university. Um, so in light of having that privilege, I'm, you know, I'm right. going to floor it and just get as much out of life as I can while trying to help out people along the way. It's a guiding principle that a lot of people, like you said, that may not have the, uh, the means for executing that, but can hopefully put themselves in a position to yeah. potentially achieve that. But I, I think something that, um, is kind of inherent that seems to be built into our culture is kind of like the, the hustle. A lot of people obviously refer to, you know, DIY culture and it's like, yeah you know, I see a lot of people for whatever, like Silicon Valley. And it's like yeah. people that are like apply those same principles, but obviously like their end goal is to become, you know, filthy rich. Yeah. Whereas like, obviously the, the DIY punk culture, it, like that, that notion was never, it was just like, yeah, yeah what's going to, what's going to make rent for this month or what's going to like last me 
in order to like get to the next thing that you're talking about. Yeah. It's funny though, because I actually hate the word hustle. Like people use that. Like yeah. well, sometimes people will be like, oh, you're such a hustler. And like hustle by definition means to almost like floss someone, to like sure. confuse them to another thing. And I've always had kind of like two different ideas. Like one, I believe in like hard work. Mm-hmm. I think like when you work hard, you're able to create things and put that out in the world and that will lead to the next stage. Kind of working hard and honestly, like money to me has always been for throwing off the backs of trains. Like I've never done anything for money. And I think in my twenties, like that was detrimental to me because I would just go down these creative rabbit holes where, you know, I would just buy groceries from like the dollar store eating ramen noodles, just so broke because it would be, I'd either be like a king or a pauper, like a big check will come in that would float me for four months. But I always knew I'm like, if I just do really cool stuff, uh, that's culturally significant versus commercially significant. I just know down the road, everything will work out. And it did. Yeah. I guess when, you know, after that, you obviously started pursuing that path of, like you said, you know, whatever, doing Switzerland, doing design work, and obviously started to develop your, your portfolio from that perspective. What, uh, I, I guess what one or two things like came in where you felt, uh, I guess, legitimized from the outside world where it was like, Oh, wow. Like, I can't believe like whether it was the photography of the people that you shouldn't have photographed, you know, photographed because of your, your quote unquote credentials or whatever. When did you feel, I guess, legitimate, um, in order for people to take the work that you did seriously? I think like a few things like, you know, getting to work with some of the bands that I liked at the time, like doing like every time I die, gutter phenomenon, doing the packaging for that, which is like handmade was like really cool. And just to see that record blow up was quite exciting because album packaging still to this date is like one of the few pieces of kind of like cre- commercial creative work where there's like a credit on it versus, sure. you know, a radio jingle. It's not like at the end, it's like as sung by or, <laughs> right, right. or, you know, you see a billboard, it doesn't have a design credit. So, um, you know, working with every time I die was really great and all those guys are, you know, awesome. So to work with them was amazing. And then um, a few years into like the design company, I had an idea with some friends to start like an art gallery as well to kind of, as we started to do more like commercial work, I have always had like a desire to um, give back like the same way I would throw small bands on punk bills. When I started this gallery called the Emporium, I wanted to be able to run it for profit um, but also not be profit dependent. So I could do, I could ask an artist to do um, like an installation takeover where you couldn't buy anything. It was just an experience. And uh, I started to get some like pretty serious press out of that, which to me was like incredibly validating as well, because the art world is like quite fickle and rigid. So to break into that by almost like doing a cannonball through like the glass ceiling and just like, you know, landing splattered on my back into the art world was amazing as well. And then, you know, from that being able to, um, you know, work with XL recordings and, you know, do music, you know, help with music videos for like Mariachi El Bronx and then working with like Jamie XX and Gil Scott Heron and being published in, you know, shooting photos for, you know, Vice or Pitchfork or mm-hmm. Rolling Stone, Chicago Tribune. Like it's all been, it's all been great, but it's just like, it's just hard work. You know what I mean? Like at, sure. the, at the sacrifice of hanging out or going out or taking vacations, it's just working hard. Right, right. You, I, I don't know if I would say fell into management, but like, obviously you take care of single mothers from yeah. the management perspective and then, which you, I never wanted to do. Right. I mean, that's cause like if someone approached me and was like, Hey, would you like to manage a band? Ray? I'd be like, never. Like I, yeah. I will manage like adults and individuals, but I will not manage a band. Um, and then obviously you subsequently, you released their record in Canada, correct? Like out of, or. Well, so, uh, I have like a record label called hot charity, which is like an imprint of XL recordings. So there's like young Turks is kind of like an imprint of XL, which has like 
twigs and um, the XX and subtract. And then Hot Charity is our label, which is Single Mothers, Willis Orbeal and Rat King. And so Single Mothers, like I had kind of like lost my love of punk for a few years, just um, as punk got bigger and more commercial, I find that like it kind of caters to like the lowest common denominator. So like all its ideology, all its ideas were gone. And it was just like this aesthetic that didn't connect to me. Like I love punk when people like were singers were preaching from the, from the stage and people were saying, fuck you. Or, you know, some bands wanted people to dance and some people were sitting down. Like, I just love that conflict and that, like, I just think wherever there's like conflict, there's interest in culture. And so Mm -hmm. when punk in kind of my neck of the woods was devoid of that. And it was just like this sound. I was like, this just sucks. And so I found that I gravitated towards bands that, um, you know, were confrontational in different ways. Like, you know, getting into like, you know, be it like swans or, you know, just like right. music that was like aggressive in a different way. It was like, um, quite interesting. Sorry, I lost. <laughs> the tra- the train of lost thought. thought no no it's uh, how you got involved with single mothers oh so single mothers so um yeah it's through this outgrowth you know eventually got connected to um to xl and you know we were obviously in charge of like doing a and r and signing bands and i had i was living in montreal at the time and i had these friends who i'd go drink beers with every now and then and they were like classic shirtless dudes and they would be like dude you gotta gotta play you this you never heard it and they put on hot snakes i'm like dude i know this and right. so like Party number 12, where they'd already like played me every band that I already knew. They put on like single mothers, just like we're streaming it through the internet from like an FTP site. Like it wasn't on MySpace. And I like almost didn't give a shit about it. But then I was listening. I was like, fuck, this is pretty good. And I was like, who is this? And the guy at the party was like, oh, it's my old band. They broke up. And I was like, fuck, this is like the one like cool thing. And I was like, well, what can you tell me about this band? He's like, oh, they're fuck ups. Like they're just like fucking singers are drunk. Like this is all this infighting. And so like a few months later, like this must've been like, I don't know if it was late 2010. I was at a back with these guys for a New Year's Eve party, kind of didn't have any plans and I just brought over beer. Uh, and I was in this guy named Chance's apartment and he was like, go offer a beer to this dude over there. And I was like, it was like the fridge full of beer. I was like, if that guy wants a beer. He can help himself to a beer. It's a small party. He's like, no, no, go offer to him. And I was like, dude, what's the gag? And he's like, oh, he's straight edge. And I was like, well, good for him. Like, you know, I was straight edge. And I respect people who are straight edge. I'm like, that guy doesn't want to drink. Like, that's totally cool. And then he goes, oh yeah, he's also in single mothers. And it was like needle scratch. I was like, fuck. So I went over and talked to that guy and I was like, dude, I'm like, I love your band. I think it's so great. I've been emailing you. And he was just like, really? And he's just like, yeah, we're just kind of like inactive. So um, it took me like so long to persuade them that I was associated with the label. Like they just didn't believe me. Like it was like super weird. Like I was like showing them records and like my email being like, see my email, like matches the records I'm putting out. And they were just like, so distrustful of someone would even like care. And so I started to put work into them because they were in like a non-functional state. Right. And so it took so much work. And then I just had a colleague, um, that I run the label with, he was like, you should really think about like managing them. Um, I mean, on paper, single mothers have been a complete financial disaster for me, Like, sure. but it's not about money for me. Like to me, it's like, um, I've been like overjoyed taking them from like a non-functional band to a band that this summer has played like Primavera Pitchfork Fest, like, you know, helping yeah. like young people realize their dreams and going from like, not even a bar band, like a band that couldn't even get bar shows now playing like the world stages and doing mm-hmm. that for like an aggressive band to me is like uh, an achievement I'm incredibly proud of. Yeah, no, totally. That it's, it is, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's incredibly interesting just because it's like you said, it's like, it's never something that you were 
desiring like oh man i can't wait to pick up a roster of mana like i mean i presume at this point like if other bands approached you you more likely than not would not be interested yeah i say i say no like i say (laughs) no and it's like i would love to i just have to like pick my battles Mm -hmm. um single mothers like i'm heavily committed to and um i'm already splayed out across like a few other creative projects that you know like when these young guys are like in a van and it's 120 degrees and ac breaks like i want to make sure that i'm supporting it versus you know my head's cocked with a phone on it talking about another project. So uh, it's why to this day, like, you know, I was in Chicago last week, like TMing and acting as like a de facto publicist for single mothers. And that's on my own dime, you know, just going down there to support it. Like I wasn't going to go. And then we get calls from like New York times and pitchfork and stereo gum to do photo shoots. I'm like, fuck, I'll hop a plane and right. Let's do this. Let's do it or else they'll fuck it up. Like I love them, but it's like, you know, I always tell bands like you were one responsibility, be great. And like, I just try and do all the, terrible boring work outside of that <laughs> right the behind, yeah you don't need to worry about the behind the scenes stuff just yeah. let, just just follow your path play your shows yeah that said though i do like my approach is like a little like old school as well because like i do ask the bands to be like involved in their career like for a few reasons like a i want them to have like financial transparency and control their money so mm-hmm. you never end up in this motown situation and two so people like value things like when you have young bands that are used to like getting flied out to coachella and then you have to ask them to like rent a van and go on tour like that's a tough pill for them to swallow where it's like, you know, it's like the Drake song. Like if you start from the bottom and you end up at the top, like you always remember what the bottom is. And I think like, sure. that's what has made single mothers like quite grateful and hardworking is that, you know, they have worked from the bottom up, like incredibly hard. And I would like, I've simply like acted as like a shepherd for them. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're a fantastic band. Like I think Drew is like an incredible writer, the singer of single mothers. And it's like, um, they would have got there eventually. I just happened to kind of land on the scene and help them. Right. You know, right. like great bands are, are magnets that people will eventually um, connect with and help out. And so, you know, there's times where they're like, thanks so much. And I was like, dude, if it wasn't me, it would have been someone else. Right. We just, just happened at the to right sync time. up. Totally, totally. The notion, you know, kind of what you were uh, alluding to in regards to kind of falling out of, of love with, you know, punk and hardcore and the stuff that you obviously grew up on. Um, cause that, that, that does, it is a common occurrence for people, mm-hmm. like you said, where it's just like, you know, whatever you go to university and all of a sudden, like all these things you cared about have to be thrown away because of just sheer time constraints or, yeah. um, your attention span. It's probably difficult to distill this down, but the idea of like, you know, keeping artistically engaged and excited, um, is it one of those things where you just find like, it's a, it's a constant pursuit and it takes work to do, um, or, um, or is it one of those things that it just happens because of, I guess you're the environment that you're in. First with regards to music, like I was always conscious of like that old guy in the scene who would tell me how like agnostic front was like the golden age. And right. then, so like, I love, like I have a deep, profound sense of respect for like what's come before me. And as I get older, I love it even more. Like, you know, I kind of work backwards and I just reached this age where the contemporary music was like kind of bad and you know, like it lost its politics. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy. Just like saying that like inside out was like the best band ever like i want to be like i live in the present you know like i have a respect for history but i live in the present and so that just kind of led me to different pursuits and i think outside of that i think like for a few years like i replaced like a really profound passion um for hardcore with like visual art and dove into that and so um you know we all create to get a reaction and i just started you know, writing and doing photo essays and installations and we get that kind of same reaction and those same dialogues. And I think that's like why you create because you're hungry for a response. And, you know, I stopped playing music in um, Switzerland. The design company was always a commercial enterprise. Like it was my livelihood. And then 
bands had always kind of represented like a pure place of just pure creativity. Like I knew I would never make uh, money with bands. And so I kind of replaced that with visual art and, you know, specifically photography and got that. But then that leads you back into music, right? Like then like bands, like can you shoot photos and then, you know, you shoot for a music thing. So I kind of just like, you know, got on the kind of collector's lane of the music highway and, you know, now I'm back in the express lane. Right, right. <laughs> it is, yeah, it, it is interesting where it's like it, when you do dedicate your life to something like that, how um, as long as it's like not too far out of reach, you mm-hmm. always get kind of pulled back in in some yeah. capacity. Like I always loved punk and it like, um, I mean, that's one thing like I always really credit single mothers with is like really got like really inspired me to get like back into punk. And I felt like whatever wave of punk we're on now, like I'm really inspired by trash talk. Like I'm really inspired by code orange. I'm really inspired by title fight. Like, I think these are all like, um, for a few years, like these kind of bands that, um, created scenes kind of like there was this, this flash in the pan where bands started getting on the radio, like hardcore bands where I think like everyone was like, fuck, we can make a run out of it. Let's make a run out of it. And there was a bottleneck. Only a few did. And then it's kind of like the dust settled and like these scenes and these kind of players have kind of emerged again. And so like, that's what inspires me now, you know, like I don't want to be the guy listening to old punk records. Like there's a time for that. Like I want to be consuming like new shit and supporting new shit and mail ordering shirts. And so the fact that there's all these like wicked new bands is like, it's fucking amazing. Totally. It's, it's, it's weird because like, obviously when you, uh, as you grow older and you're still engaged in this, it's weird for you to be able to notice a cycle, like yeah. where it's just like, Oh yeah. Like now you're able to see bands, obviously aping what has been happening, what was happening in the early to mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And like for you and I we're just like, Oh, like, yeah, I've heard that before. And like, it's and not in like a, Oh, you're regurgitating it. Yeah. But like, it's just bizarre to be able to be like, Oh yeah. Like, of course that's where they'd look for influence because yeah, I mean, I feel like a little different about that because I was like, I love no warning. And even when like I was like experiencing no warning like a uh-huh. few years ago, like I was like really conscious that this was um, like an homage to what had become before it. Sure. So like I do think it's interesting now because I think like these young bands who are like, you know, young millennials in their 20s are like rediscovering grunge. And so you have like these grungy kind of things. And yep. I don't know, I never think um, I never think like ill of that, you know, I mm-hmm. kind of like I get it because like when I was that age, like and cook for no warning was kind of doing a throwback band and that was still great you know and i think like when you're a creative person you just realize like all creativity is pastiche you're taking influence you're always taking influences like nothing's net new right you know? and i think like title fight has like grungy stuff that's kind of uh shoegaze and you're like they're reinventing it in a cool way totally because they're I always, I always try to remind myself too where it's just like they're presenting that version of something that is older for your 14 to 15 year old kid because like that culture is always going to stay the same age. And so if there isn't a band either replicating or duplicating or being influenced by that particular Mm -hmm. sound, um, that 14 or 15 year old kid is never going to hear that until they're like, no warning was my agnostic front. Right. Sure. And then like through that you work backwards. So totally. Um, like you said, it is, it's, it is exciting and engaging because it's like, yeah, the moment that you give up and say that, you know, like, Oh, this is, you know, 2011 is where, (laughs) Like I always loved punk. I just felt like left like heartbroken by punk because I understand that people wanted to milk it for what it's worth. It just got bad because it was like, I think like, I'm not a gatekeeper of the scene, but like, you know, like people just like the aesthetic of it. So like these kids that like weren't from the scene, just join the scene and have different ideas and that's fine. You know, that can be exciting. I just thought that, um, you know, it lost 
it just lost what was interesting about it. And you saw that with the death of like Hydrohead Records. Like mm-hmm. you saw it with these like la- other labels blowing up and putting out like shitty stuff that, sure. and then I just realized I was like, I don't want to be that guy that hates on the scene. Like the scene's just not right for me right now. Right. You know? And it's like, I recognize that like, if this is, you know, sometimes you have to write yourself like out of the situation because <laughs> you just realize like you're that sour grape guy. Right. Um, but I'm like stoked to, you know, kind of see the scene kind of like reemerge or reinvent itself in a way that like feels like familiar to me and like really inspiring, which is making something out of nothing. Yeah. Like, you know, like when I hear the title fight guys talk, I'm like, fuck, man, I feel like I grew up with you. Like I totally like <laughs> I love that that spirit's alive. Like that's yep. like I'm so passionate about that. And I think it's like so inspiring, you know? No, totally. Uh, the last thing I want to hit on before uh, we ended was the uh, just because you've been able to uh, delve into so many different worlds that don't necessarily uh, either have adopted the aesthetic or um, have been engrossed within, you know, the punk and independent music culture. When you encounter people uh, that either don't understand that context, mm-hmm. um, is it weird to have to bring like, if you're trying to accomplish a piece of art or a work with them, is it one of those things where you have to, f- you feel the compulsion to be like, well, here's exactly kind of where I'm coming from. Um, or is it like, is there some education process? Cause I- I'm sure, especially in the artistic world where mm-hmm. it's just like, the idea of like, oh, can you make that look punk or whatever? Like, you know, that yeah. those words come out of people's mouths and it's just like, what does that even mean? Like, where are you coming from? Yeah, I think I mean like lucky because like over the last decade, like I've had enough like creative victories where, um, you know, I feel like creatively you're either treated like a deck builder where someone's like, here's the plans, go build it. Or you're treated as like an artist where people are like, I know what you do, therefore I want to work with you. And like, I feel like really lucky that I'm in that other camp where people kind of know like the music videos that I've worked on or they're kind of like, you know, big marketing ideas that I come up with. So uh, I feel like that's what attracts them to me. And I think like what they like inadvertently get to experience is like, I am like a punk rocker. And I think like I bring a lot of value to people because I, you know, if I'm on a commercial, like I'm like, I can direct it. Like, don't worry, we got someone who can edit it. And it's like, just don't need all this like formality. Like every great piece of artwork, like wasn't made through a formal process, right? Like whether it's like Robble Maple Maplethorpe taking photographs of Patti Smith. Like he just shot them in his apartment and now they're like really amazing pieces of like culturally defining art. And it's like, you just don't need that permission. And so I think if I told you like, Hey, I don't really know what I'm doing, but it's going to look great. I wouldn't get that job. But the fact that like the shit I make does well, you know, I kind of tell them that on the flip side, right? By the way, I didn't even know what I was doing, but (laughs) look what we made. Yeah. By the way, this was, this was, it came out rad, right? That's all the results are there. (laughs) Oh yeah. Like, I mean, there's so many projects where I'm just like in my head, just being like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Early music videos where I'd be like, how does everyone know how to show up tomorrow? Like you got to send a day sheet to tell everyone where to be. You'd have the weather on it and where to be. I was like, oh shit. Okay. Oh yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. How about everybody be here at 10 AM? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like one in doubt. Google it. Right. (laughs) Film release you'll find there. What kind of insurance you need. Totally. Or there's a YouTube tutorial on it. (laughs) hundred percent. That's why I love that. That's why I donate to Wikipedia. That's why I donate to YouTubers. Cause I'm just like, you guys make me possible without your instructional 10 minute videos to show me how to open my hard drive on my laptop. Right. I'd be nowhere. you're, You're like, that's that, that is what the internet exists for. Well, I really appreciate you hanging out, and this was uh, very fun for me to get to know you even better than I already do. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Of course, dude. There you go. There was Ben. I was just so happy to have that discussion and document it because, uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, he's worked in every medium, photography, music, business into things. It was just, it's so exciting when people can uh, be so versatile and still be able to 
achieve whatever they're artistically trying to do. I just, I, I love that fact. And uh, yeah, I love that Ben was able to exemplify that and showcase that uh, in this discussion. So like I said, if you are an audio person, please email me 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Tom Richfield is the producer and makes this thing sound ever so sweet. So thank you to him as always. And visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com. And please, until next week, thank you and be safe, everybody. 